and welcome to episode 17 of Expected Value, the podcast that aims to pull back the curtain a bit on the sports analytics world. I'm Paul Carr from True Media. So far in this month of football guests, we've had ESPN's Paul Sabin talking about their analytics department's various metrics, the athletics Mike Sando on using data in journalism, and Pro Football Focus's Eric Eager on data science and what PFF does for NFL teams. So check the archives if you missed any of those. For this Super Bowl week, our guest is Aaron Schatz, founder and editor-in-chief of Football Outsiders, which was the first prominent football analytics website starting in the early 2000s. Aaron and I worked together on the ESPN show Numbers Never Lie back in 2011. He still writes for ESPN, appears on the Off the Charts podcasts, and much more, in addition to running Football Outsiders. Aaron and I will talk about why the Chiefs are a Super Bowl favorite, according to Football Outsiders' top metric, DVOA how each team's offense and defense match up against each other, the origins of football outsiders, their flagship metric of DVOA, where football analytics is going, and what it was like for Aaron to be on Late Night with Seth Meyers. Then Albert Larcata will join me to react and wrap things up. Now, without further ado, here's the expected value conversation with football outsiders Aaron Schatz. We're joined now on Expected Value by Aaron Schatz, the founder and editor-in-chief of Football Outsiders. Aaron, welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us during this busy Super Bowl week. And let's start right there. We're recording this on a Monday. What will this Super Bowl week look like for you? I'm not really quite sure. (laughs) Because by the time people are hearing this, I will probably be in Miami. And this is the first Super Bowl week that I am going to be part of the media for the entire week like a regular media member. Mm. And I have no idea what's in store for me, just how much coverage I'll be able to do versus just sitting down and writing my normal previews. And the hotels that the media is staying in are like a half hour away from the media center. And I just found out in the last couple of days that the league is not providing us with any media shuttles. So we have to find our own way around Miami. So this is going to be (laughs) a bit confusing. So I actually have absolutely no clue what Super Bowl week is going to be like, except that I'm going to write a big, long preview. All right. Well, we'll kind of pick your brain, help get the ball rolling on that and get you ready for some of the questions you're going to face in the Super Bowl week. Let's start right just at the very top. So your uh, flagship metric for Football Outsiders, which we'll talk about a little more later, is DVOA. And by that metric, you have the Chiefs as a 57% favorite to win the Super Bowl. Why is that in general? Uh, That's because in the weighted ratings that lower the strength of the early season games, we have Kansas City higher than San Francisco. Kansas City is at 44% above average. San Francisco is 32% above average. And we get, you know, roughly the same, not quite the same difference, but we'd also have Kansas City ahead if we did the full season ratings, but we took out the games where Matt Moore played quarterback for the Mm -hmm. Chiefs. Okay, so the Chiefs have been playing better lately would be the the super short version to that, right? Yeah, I mean, not the last, you know, the playoffs, San Francisco has played really, mm-hmm. really well. But right. Over the last half of the season, basically, Kansas City has played a little bit better than San Francisco. Cool. So let's look at from the Chiefs offensive side of the ball. Strength against strength. Chiefs offense is great. The Niners defense uh, was great, especially early. How do you think the Chiefs might attack that Niners defense? Uh, I would bet that Uh, A big part of it is going to be going deep Mm -hmm. because here's one of the interesting things I found. If you look at passes of 16 or more yards, San Francisco actually was the worst team in the league in yards after the catch. Hmm. Okay. 
So like yards after the catch on deep passes, you know, mostly it's, you know, they play a lot of zone, you know, you want to keep things in front of you, but if you beat them deep, you can beat them deep. And Kansas city has got the speed receivers to do that. Right. So when the Niners have the ball, their running game's obviously been pretty dominant in the first couple playoff games. Chiefs defense bottled up Derrick Henry relatively well in the title game. How do you see the Niners and their running game faring against the Chiefs defense? Well, it's a very different running game, right? Because yep. it's based a lot more on zone and it's based a lot more on like uh, motion and confusion and wide receiver runs. Uh, San Francisco had uh, the most yards in the league on wide receiver runs wide receiver and tight end runs Mm -hmm. and i have no idea how kansas city is going to deal with that because they've only faced six of those runs all season which is not really a big sample size to figure out how they face it the other thing is can san francisco keep at this level like my first feeling was going to be no but san francisco has had a run offense dvoa over 50 percent in three of its last six games Hmm. okay which is, I mean, they've actually been playing at this level. And I went back and looked, and it's really remarkable. If you look at the San Francisco run offense, if you take out week six to 11, which is when either George Kittle and or Kyle Juszczyk were hurt and not playing. Mm -hmm. If you look just since week 12, they're the number one run offense in the league, and they're averaging 5.7 yards a carry. Hmm. If you look just in the first five weeks before Kittle or Juszczyk were hurt, there were the number five run offense in the league and were averaging 5.6 yards a carry. But during that period, when either Kittle or Juszczyk was hurt, they were the number 31 run offense in the league, wow. averaging only 3.8 yards a carry. That's a pretty huge difference, obviously. Any other numbers kind of jump out at you as you're piecing together your full preview? I mean, both teams are pretty good on special teams. Uh, you know, the one weakness for San Francisco this year has been Robbie Gold, but, you know, field goal percentage is pretty inconsistent from year to year, and he's got a good career record. I, you know, I don't really think he's any kind of a weakness. Kansas City's defense has been better in the second half of the year. San Francisco's defense has been not quite as good in the second half of the year. You know, I just think Kansas City is a little bit better, and I just, I guess I trust the quality of the quarterback more than I trust the quality of the defense, you know, sure. given the work yeah. that's been done this year by people about the inconsistency of defense not just from year to year, which is something we've always written about, but from game to game. The other thing is the Kansas City offense. The Kansas City running game is actually a bit of a, a weakness, I think more than the numbers suggest, because their run offense ratings are kind of uh, propped up by Patrick Mahomes' scrambles. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like Mahomes has been scrambling a lot more in recent weeks, and I, I would be a little worried about that if I were San Francisco. Yeah. You had a tweet earlier this week about the last week about the Chiefs red zone offense being much better uh, in the second half. And that kind of made me think how, you know, we hear about a team struggling in the red zone, like the, I think the Falcons a year or two ago, um, or how defense can bend up but not break. Uh, generally speaking, to kind of borrow an old David Letterman line, like, is this anything? Or what do I guess the numbers suggest about how units tend to fare in the red zone? Yeah, now this is, it's it's more of a thing with defense than offense. But in defense, like, Red zone performance separate from total performance usually doesn't mean anything in the long run. Almost always in the long run, defensive performance in the red zone sort of regresses to whatever a team's overall defensive performance is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so generally it's a small sample size thing, and the team, it, they, they are what they are, if you will. Right, in general. And offenses, I, you know, if I'm remembering correctly, 
is uh, there's a little bit more of an of it actually being a thing, but uh, I think the fact that their offense has improved in the red zone in the second half is an example of the kind of regression that I'm talking about. Like the Kansas City offense is very good. Mm-hmm. It was naturally going to be very good in the red zone in the long run because they're naturally very good overall. And then the second half of the season that happened. Right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I want to ask, kind of go back to the origins of Football Outsiders. I know you have a, a good origin story of how you kind of came up with the side. What is that? So, yeah, the origin of Football Outsiders was that I was a football fan and like a longtime Bill James reader and always kind of wondered why there was nobody doing that kind of an analytics for football. And there was a guy by the name of Ron Borges who he writes for the Boston Herald now, but at the time he wrote for the Boston Globe and this is 2002. And he wrote a lot about that. The Patriots were not going to go back to the playoffs again because they couldn't establish the run. And at the same time, his team that he picked that, he thought was going to win it all that year was Oakland and their running back was Charlie Garner, who was primarily a pass catcher. So it didn't make sense to me. Why, why was establishing the run important if Oakland never really did it? Hmm. So I'm like, okay, well, Bill James got started just counting stolen bases out of box scores. I'm going to just do the same thing. I'm just going to count runs and see whether, whether teams running in the first half of games or the first quarter of games actually impacts how often they win, like, you know, does running lead to wins? And I found what, you know, anybody, like the first thing you learn about analytics at this point is that no, it's correlation does not equal causation, that Mm -hmm. uh, normally teams rack up the runs when they're running out the clock late in games, but that normally that they have to pass to get ahead. And, but in order to count the runs, I cut and paste from ESPN's play-by-play into a big database. And then I discovered like I had, this big database of every play from the NFL season in 2002, uh, why don't I do something with it? So I started playing around with some new statistics and trying to come up with new ways to analyze it. So, and ultimately you get to a DVOA, which is again, your kind of flagship stat, perhaps the one you're known most for. Tell us about that stat, how the origin uh, came about and what you do with it. Well, it's based on like the one analytical book that existed about mm-hmm. football, which was the hidden game of football by Pete Palmer, Bob, uh, Bob Carroll, and John Thorne. Yep. And the basic idea that's in the hidden game of football is the idea of success rate, which is that you should judge play success based not on the total yardage, but based on the down and distance so that a five-yard run on a first and 10 is different than a five-yard run on a third and 10. So... I used that basic success rate uh, idea to create the idea of these success points that you would get, you know, where you would get extra points if you got 10 yards and extra points if you got 20 and extra points if you got a touchdown. And eventually it became this sort of curve of success. And then that came out with Mike Allstott as the most valuable running back (laughs) in the NFL, which uh, didn't make logical sense. So, what I realized was that the reason that Mike Allstott came out as the best running back in the NFL was that Mike Allstott tended to carry the ball in situations that lead to success, right? He right. Yeah. Would get the ball either on the goal line or on third and one. Right. Once you compared Mike Allstott's third and one carries to what an average running back did on third and one, 
he was no longer the best running back in the league. Now the best running back in the league was Priest Holmes. Sounds better. So that was the start of DVOA. It's funny. It sounds like uh, it's like when you see closers at the top of what when probability added or something because it's just right. circumstantial and things. Right, because of course the closers are at the top of win probability right. added. They're showing up in the ninth inning of right. one run yeah, game. By definition, how does I feel like this year we've seen a lot of last couple of years in football analytics a lot more uh, EPA related information. How does DVOA compare to some of the EPA uh, models in general that we see? Yeah, I mean I think they come out as fairly similar in you know how much they correlate to future performance. Mm-hmm. DVOA obviously includes the opponent adjustments, right. which is a big part of it and it cuts off certain plays at certain distances meaning the idea is that there's really very little difference between a 40 yard run and an 80 yard right, run right. other okay. than where you started you know where you started the, the play as far as like predictive ability once you get to about a 40 yard play you know adding more yards onto a play aren't necessarily right. as predictive yeah, you're generally just in the open field running. Right. And um, there are some other differences if I compare things closely. The funny thing is when I started, I actually created my own EPA model mm-hmm. early on. And then I just decided to use DVOA instead of, instead of EPA. You know, little did I know that 16 years later, all of a sudden, all these people would be using EPA. Yeah. Because now it's publicly available with the NFL Scrape R package. Mm-hmm. Whereas when I started... Like the only database of NFL play by play was the one I created myself by cutting and pasting. There was no other database. <laughs> How have the responses to this evolved over the years? I mean, so I guess what's the f- early responses that you got when you're developing this DVOA and you're putting it out in the public sphere a little bit? Uh, what are you hearing from whether it's you know teams or media or just general uh, people using the data? Well, I mean, I think the main response is the same. We're just getting less of it now than we were 17 years ago. Uh-huh. You know, the main response is, oh, you know, football is too complicated a game to explain with numbers and uh, or, you know, you're not measuring heart <laughs> right? or, uh, you know, you need to watch the film. I mean, now we have stats that are created out of watching the film. So, mm-hmm. you know, you need to watch the film is no longer like we watch the film and we create stats out of it. I mean, yeah. I, I don't anymore. We used to with the volunteer project, but it was just way too hard to manage with such mm-hmm. a small company like football outsiders. Right. So now we get that data from sports info solutions, but you know, now we have data on how teams perform with different coverages or running specific routes. You know, that's the kind of, you know, you need to watch the film type stuff that people yeah. always pointed to from the beginning. Yeah. To add those tags and such. I think there's a, a much better decision, you know, much better understanding of the idea that, you know, for one thing, there's a difference between trying to judge specific players mm-hmm. on using stats, which does, you know, get complicated by the fact that different, you know, players interact with each other. And there's a lot of, in baseball, it's difficult to measure defense In football. Everything is what baseball defense is, right? I mean, you yeah, don't have yeah, one-on-one matchups, but you know, that when it comes to measuring teams or measuring game situations, there's, you know, there's really no reason why football is any less, why numbers are any less valuable in football than they are in, in baseball or, or basketball when it comes to like deciding in-game decisions, like going for it on fourth down. The numbers about going for it on fourth down are just as trustworthy as the numbers about whether you should foul down three in basketball or whether you should be sacrificed bunting in baseball. It's, 
you know, they're all, it's all team level numbers. Right. Yeah. You've got the same volume of uh, sample size. Have, have you ever heard from teams? How have teams reacted to maybe seeing some of these metrics? They ever, I mean, obviously we're not asking you to like reveal uh, proprietary information, but any feedback you get or questions you get from teams looking at this stuff? I mean, I honestly uh, probably heard from teams more in the middle of my career. Mm -hmm. Once people were sort of used to the idea and were interested in it, than I do now because now teams just hire if teams that want to do analytics just hire their own analytics departments. Right. They're not as interested in outsiders like myself. They just hire their own people. Yeah. Yeah. What do you see for the future for football outsiders? I guess what's next would be a, a better way to ask as you continue to grow and evolve. Obviously there's interest in the gaming space. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of football data in the public sphere, that's where a lot of the interest is. Um, but I mean, the other thing is there's a lot of research, I think, going on now, finally on like for a long time, football stats were split between what I would call the mathy stuff and the charting stuff. Mm -hmm. Right. There, there was there was the stats that you created by charting games, uh, whether that was uh, like cornerback coverage metrics or counting quarterback pressures or. PFF's grades. And then there was the mathy stuff, like looking at year to year changes, looking at regression. And now finally, there's a lot of work being done on sort of combining the two. And then the other thing, of course, is where's football data going? It's all going towards those next gen stats. Right. And the data, and unfortunately, that data is, is available to teams, but not really to outsiders. And it's a huge fire hose of data that is really hard to just wrangle uh, mm -hmm. and control because there's so much, yeah. but teams have the people who can analyze it and teams will get teams will get use out of that. Uh, but they don't make that data. They make it public in very small bits as part of the big data bowl. Right. They don't make like the whole thing public or anything like that. And what do you think of the NGS data? Like what is something that you'd be interested if, you know, if you had a, a full set or whatever it might be that you would look at trying to do with it? Oh, I mean, uh, being able to quantify things like pass pressure, not only by measuring pressures based on how often a defender gets within X you know, feet of the quarterback, but also stuff like ESPN's pass block win rate and pass rush win rate mm -hmm. uh, is just phenomenal. And, and you could do all kinds of interesting things with that. So I want to look at your background a little bit. I always like to just see how people kind of come into this space from a professional standpoint. So what, before you started getting the football outsider stuff going, what was kind of your background that positioned you to do this from a skills perspective, we'll say? Nowadays, people can actually major in sports analytics uh -huh. at some colleges. Yeah. And they can certainly major in data analytics. And they are doing stuff when they're still in college and they know all these computer languages that analyze the data. Uh, I didn't have any of that when I got started right. 17 years ago. So my background is I have an economics degree. Uh, I was in the radio business uh, and I was a writer for a while. When I you know, think of myself a little bit as the Bill James of football, it's not just because I was first. It's also because like Bill James, I'm not really a trained statistician. Right. You know, I sort of taught myself a lot of this stuff while doing it because I was interested in writing about football and nobody else was doing this. And <laughs> I didn't understand why was nobody writing statistical stuff for why was there no baseball prospectus for football? You know, why was there mm -hmm. no Bill James stuff for football or Rob Nyer? So I decided I would try to do that myself. 
but it involved a lot of teaching myself. You know, I wasn't playing with R. I didn't have an an already available database of plays. There was no charting data. There was none of that when I got started. So your challenge was as much purely just getting the data as figuring out what to do with it then. And then drawing attention to myself, which luckily I'm <laughs> quite a media whore. So I did a good job of drawing attention to myself and and getting people interested in what we were doing. So what do you say to people now? I'm sure you get people coming up to you or emailing and asking, how do I get into football analytics? What do you tell them uh, now if that's something that someone wants to go toward? Well, again, now you can do all this stuff before you even get out of college. You can major in data analytics. You know, I would major in some sort of a data analytics thing or economics, but know how to use R, know how to use Python. You can't be me because I, I was me. You know, it's like <laughs> right, people right. ask me for a long time how to do what I do. And the answer is you you can't be the guy who founds the first football analytics site because I founded the first football analytics site. Yeah. But what you can do is do cool research, submit it places, try to get it published to try to get people's attention. And that's what's happened is people have been using the NFL scrape our package to do their own research and put it just on Twitter and then apply for jobs with teams. And that's how the Baltimore Ravens hired their entire analytics department. So, you know, the funny thing is, I think the question that people would ask me of how you get into football analytics is, I don't think as many people have to ask me that anymore. I think Mm. at this point, it's kind of clear how you get into it. Yeah. By doing it, I guess, huh? Yeah. And, And it's out there. The data is out there for you to do. You don't have to you don't have to compile your own data or ask me for data. It's it's freely available at this point. When you are watching a game, whether it's just as a fan, you're, you're sitting on your couch on a Sunday, like, like how do you watch? Or I guess maybe what goes through your head or are there certain things that you're keeping an eye on on the field differently? I'm always interested in how, whether it's a player or a statistician analyst, uh, just watches a game. So what's the process for you? I mean, I mostly, you know, I watch as a fan, but, you know, I'll try to identify coverages, but it's hard using the TV angles. Mm-hmm. I'll try to figure out which players are, you know, really playing well or badly. Usually when I'm watching a game, I'm commenting for our audibles at the line, which is the column that we write Right. for Monday morning, where we basically just do a big discussion among the football outsiders writers about the games that we watched on Sundays. So as far as analytics go, you know, I'll think about certain players who might be rated better or worse according to analytics. And obviously when fourth down comes, I think about it very differently than, a lot of coaches do, although, you know, the rise in aggressiveness over the last two years is pretty substantial. Yeah. Yeah, you don't have to yell, yell at the TV as much now. Yeah, not as much, but you still have to plenty. Right. I mean, you know, there were there were a couple of fourth and ones in the San Francisco Green Bay game early on. Yeah. I think one, one for each team where it was just, don't punt on fourth and one in the opponent's side of the field, ever, right. ever. Nice, easy rule. All right, let's wrap things up with our playing favorite segment. I'm going to start by asking you who your favorite athlete was when you were growing up. Okay, so this is kind of nutty, but first of all, I was a baseball fan much more than a football fan when I was a kid. And even though I was a Cubs fan, I lived in Southern California. My favorite athlete was a player for the Dodgers because of being local. Mm-hmm. So my favorite player growing up was Kenny Landro. Wow. What uh, drew you to him particularly? I have no idea. I don't even remember. <laughs> Was it maybe a baseball card, or did you collect his cards or anything like that? It may have had something to do with a babysitter. I, <laughs> I honestly don't remember where that comes from. And then after Kenny Landro, it was Ryan Sandberg. Okay, that one makes a little more sense. 
And probably my first favorite football player once I got into football was probably Ben Coates. Ben Coates. Ah, big Patriots tight end. All right. You and I worked together on Numbers Never Lie at ESPN back in 2011. You have a favorite memory from kind of getting into that uh, on the TV side a lot more for the first time? Yeah, that was really great. I really enjoyed doing it. It was a shame that that show sort of dissolved after the four months that I was on it. Yeah. They had a hard time finding basically people like me who could do other sports. Uh, And like me, I'm not being obnoxious by thinking I'm awesome. (laughs) I mean, like that could get to Bristol. Yeah. I mean, part of (laughs) part of the appeal for you is you live nearby and it was relatively easy to get you there. Right. So I think either Herm Edwards' socks. (laughs) Always great. Or the time that I told Michael Smith that he was on crack for thinking that Eli Manning was better than Tom Brady. I'd say that take has held up pretty well. Yeah, although, boy, we get to have the debate now. I mean, you look back. It's funny because you look back at the year we did. Yeah. Uh, Numbers Never Lie was 2011. And 2011 is a really interesting year to look back on because it's Eli Manning's best year. Mm-hmm. But it's also the year when you had three different quarterbacks having historically great seasons. So even though Eli was having his best year, there's no way that he could compare to what Rodgers, Brady, and Breeze were doing in 2011. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, okay, so speaking of doing TV, uh, I remember seeing you on Late Night with Seth Meyers back, I want to say in 2017. Uh, what's your favorite memory from doing that? The whole thing was awesome. Yeah. The fact that Seth wanted to talk to me a little bit more about football, even once we were off the air, mm-hmm. was kind of cool. For sure. Um, you know, He's a fan. You know, He's like, he follows my Twitter. He reads the books. Like, that was a great... It was a really big kick to do that show. Nice. That's great. You have a favorite kind of a woe moment, maybe from earlier in the Football Outsider days when you realized you had something here? The early days, probably when I went to Nashville to learn about watching film from Jim Schwartz and Matt Mm -hmm. Burke Mm -hmm. was pretty high up there on the list and hanging out with people at the Combine. I think the biggest, like, how did I get here moment of all was a few years into my doing this was when I covered my first Super Bowl because you get there and there's just the pomp and circumstance of the Super Bowl and so much press is there. And it was Super Bowl 49 and being a Patriots fan to see them win the Super Bowl in such a dramatic fashion, the Malcolm Butler interception was right below where we were sitting in the auxiliary press area. Wow. That was my biggest like, wow, Mm -hmm. how did I get to this point moment? Yeah. That is great. That's a good story to end with. So with that, uh, we'll wrap things up. Good luck covering uh, the Super Bowl this week. Aaron Schatz, founder and editor-in-chief of Football Outsiders. Thank you for joining us here on Expected Value. Hey, thanks for having me on the podcast. Back in the True Media studio, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks again to Football Outsiders Aaron Schatz for joining us on Expected Value. You can follow him on Twitter at F-O underscore A Schatz, S-C-H-A-T-Z, and read footballoutsiders.com for their latest analysis on the Super Bowl and much more. I'm joined now by Albert Lakata, True Media's Senior Director of Business Development and Data Science. Albert, what did you take away from the conversation with Aaron? Yeah, so uh, it, it's funny. This was a, kind of a random question thrown in there, but the one that stuck out to me was uh, uh, you asked him about how he watches football games and, you know, what he goes through and all that. So I think it's funny. I think if you, if you work in sports analytics or even just kind of follow it 
generally and know uh, you know some of the things that we like to say about fourth and one and all that. Uh, you can see the situation when you're watching a game so differently than the people that you're watching it with. Like for example, I, I watched a lot of Red Zone this year with my dad, and every time a fourth and one would come up, I would just I don't know instinctively go for it. And then uh, he'd say, why? What? You're not going to go for it. It's fourth and one. It's the first quarter, whatever it was. Uh, and then I'd basically have to explain the whole concept of expected points over and over again, seemingly each week. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, I mean, fourth and one is actually a semi-simple situation. And then when you get more complicated with, you know, when you're down 14 and you score a touchdown to go down eight, and the, the math actually says you should go for two there too. Um, so it just, it, it's funny. We... A, we, we must be so annoying to watch football games with. But, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but also, it, it's funny. It's you just uh, you start seeing things totally differently than I saw it, you know, when I was in middle school watching a game. Yeah, no, I've had very similar experiences watching with uh, my dad or friends. Yeah, if it's fourth and one, yeah, just, just you know, go for it. It doesn't even matter. If it's fourth and almost, you know, anything under five and you're across midfield or whatever, just go for it without even thinking about it. Uh, you know, I can't completely say that's what the models would suggest but you know it's at least really close and it's the same with you know whether it's when to figure out uh going for two the timeout situation you know i think people are so much smarter about knowing when to call timeouts not to call timeouts you know before and after the two minute warning and such and the way you say it is sounds like it's just kind of almost a silly thing and i think it's actually kind of important in a sense so let's look if fans are figuring all this out you know just you and me and dad friends sitting on the couch you know that teams are starting to figure this out and media are starting to figure this out like we saw on nbc this year they were running a win probability based on decision whether i think to you know punt go for a kick a field goal and they're obviously not getting super deep into why that is but even just seeing that on tv that helps fans it helps it sounds kind of silly but i think it helps you know players owners coaches a little bit who are in the weeds on these things anyway but there's some sense of acceptance and understanding that comes along with all this so yeah it's a slow build but it's something it's not nothing right the the tv medium in particular is tough because some of these concepts like expected points are just not they're really hard to explain in a tv window in five seconds ten seconds but you actually kind of need to understand it and you know at least have a basic understanding of what it is to really get you know the fourth and one situation and 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 all of that so it's tough you end up with these sound bites with color guys saying oh the analytics say do this or this or this which actually comes off as very condescending i think to fans where it's just accept it the analytics say it and but they don't you know i'm not judging them because they don't really have time to go into the why of of why it happens so they're stuck in kind of a tough situation where they understand even if they understand it it's you don't really have the time to explain all the details of why. Yeah, I dealt with this a lot at ESPN, as you would expect, because you know we put graphics up, on, like on the soccer side, it's uh, wanting to put expected goals on a graphic, and you know just like a simple post-game graphic with you know shots and expected goals instead of some other stat because that can tell a different story, and it's hard because that graphic's up there for 15 seconds. Sometimes it's really only there just to get from like a highlight to the studio. And so, yeah, you can't take even 30 seconds to explain it. And you got to boil it down to, oh, and if you look at XG, which is basically shot quality, and that's, that's something. And just kind of keep pounding away at it with behind the scenes with producers, with talent. And it kind of eventually bleeds over. But it takes a while, and it's not easy just because, like I said, you know, NBC is not going to have a 
half hour special explaining XG before a playoff game or, you know, even a three minute discussion in studio going over these metrics before games, something like that. So it's, it's a challenge for sure. Right. Yeah. It's a war of attrition in a lot of ways. Just keep pounding it until, you know, people get it. And I think that mirrors kind of what teams have to deal with when they're uh, getting that information, trying to people who are, you know, generally trying to learn a lot of the time. It just, it just takes time and a lot of energy and redundancy. Just kind of keep hitting it over and over again until you get there. Yep, exactly. All right. Thanks, Albert. Thanks again to Aaron Schatz for joining us on the show. You can read his work over at footballoutsiders.com. Check out our show notes for links to his site, their metrics and research findings, and his appearance on Seth Meyers. And if you missed any of our football episodes this month, check out the last few shows, including PFF's Eric Eager. I talked Super Bowl, various football topics with him last week. Uh, no show next week. Albert and I will be in London for the Opta Pro Forum, an annual soccer analytics conference. Give us a shout if you'll be there. We'd love to say hi. Hit us up on Twitter with questions or feedback at True Media Sports or email expectedvalue at truemedianetworks.com. Please rate and review the show wherever you listen, Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else. Tell a friend to listen. We always appreciate people spreading the word. On behalf of Albert Larcata and everyone here at True Media, I'm Paul Carr. Thanks for listening to Expected Value, the podcast that goes inside the sports analytics world. Mm-hmm.